This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. My guest today is Axie Infinity co-founder Jeff Gio Zerlin. The Colossus team covered the Axie origin story in September of last year, but we felt it was an ideal time to revisit the play to earn pioneer. Gio and I cover his involvement with the Axie ecosystem, including gameplay, the economic model, and creating a sidechain. Please enjoy my conversation with Gio. Gio, thank you for joining today. I really appreciate having you on the show. When I first met Gio at NFC Basel, I was introduced by a friend. I started up talking to him about Axie. He was extremely patient with his time. And I noticed a group of people around taking photos and they weren't taking photos of me. They were waiting for autographs and taking pictures. And it just blew my mind at how many people from all over the world were just so excited to see you down in Miami. Later in the day, I saw you shooting what looked like a music video. So I really felt like you're one of the rock stars in crypto NFTs gaming. So I appreciate you coming today. You grew up collecting fossils, playing World of Warcraft, and you wrote a thesis about speculative bubbles and economic systems in college. So I really can't think of anyone better to create an economic structure in a game. But I'd just be curious to hear your start, how you ended up in Axie, like where it all began. First and foremost, I want people to know that I joined the Axie community as a community member first. I bought three Axies. I thought they were cute. I was from the CryptoKitties community originally. So there were a subset of early people in the NFT space that thought we need actual utility for these things. We need to be able to create memories with them for there to actually be sustainable economic value here. There needs to be some sort of social capital backing it, some fun. It seemed like, okay, hey, Axie is actually trying to execute on this vision. So I joined as a community member, started building step-by-step helped with the initial white paper, started doing some community building initiatives and things that really just started to snowball. I think I was attracted to Axie. I was attracted to NFTs because I grew up as a collector and a gamer. That side of the brain is where I thought that was my circle of expertise, I guess. I grew up collecting insects with my father. That was the way that I could impress him. Just like any kid, I think, wants to impress their parents. Any son wants to impress their father. That was my way of finding a rare bug, finding a rare butterfly. On the other hand, I was an only child. So I spent a lot of time by myself. And video games from Donkey Kong Country and the Super Nintendo onward were a way for me to basically entertain myself when I didn't want to read anymore. When I was at home, I would either read or I would play video games. My cousins are Korean, so they would come and that would be like the best thing ever because I didn't have siblings. They would bring Diablo, StarCraft. They would introduce me to these Blizzard games. That's how I got introduced to the internet. In 1997, I was on Battle.net playing with anyone anywhere in the world. I knew from an early age that 
gaming is a great way to demo and test out new technologies and often most relatable use case, at least to me. So when I found out about NFTs, I was like, hey, this is more interesting than what I've seen in the past from crypto. I was interested in crypto. I understood the digital gold case for Bitcoin, but that was worrying to me. I was more into accumulating as much Tesla as I could back then, 2013, 2014. If I wanted to just speculate and try to make money, I already had a lot of ideas on how to do that. So blockchain wasn't interesting to me until I found out about NFTs. I kind of went down the rabbit hole. I was a CryptoKitties breeder for a couple of months there. And then I found Axies. I was just lucky where I was part of the first initial cohort to do that. Maybe to take a step back as coming to it from a gamer, because I think there's an interesting narrative going on right now between gaming and NFTs. Can you talk about the arc of gaming? Like when I was a kid, you bought a console, you played a video game. I think that my gaming career probably ended at Halo. So I'm not a gamer because all of a sudden gaming was becoming something you could get really good at and it was harder to play. So just give a sense of buying a console, playing a game to the evolutions of where we are today. We've had digital economies for a long time. They've just been more authoritarian and the tax rates have been approaching 100%. When I played Diablo, I was just trading items with people trying to get better stuff. In World of Warcraft, my guild, we used to gear up and the Chinese gold farming operations would pay us to gear up their stuff. We'd always run into TOS violations, get our stuff banned. There's always been this gray or black market for these digital economies. They've never been embraced. It's always been secondary. Whereas the way that I see it is the internet has a problem where we don't own our data. We don't own our digital identity. Our game items are part of this issue. And I see gamers as citizens. We're spending more and more of our time online. We're becoming part of these online communities. Just like we should own our data, we should also own the game characters. We should own the in-game resources. We should be able to, as gamers, even own parts of the games that we're using. And I think that's a big part of the ethos of Web3 is products should be owned by the communities that use them. And how do you actually facilitate that is the extraction of middlemen. When you don't have these middlemen extracting 50 to 60% of the value, then you have all this other value that you can actually give to the people that are so crucial to the functioning of these products. Maybe now would be a good time to introduce, for the people who haven't heard it, Patrick did an interview last year that was a deep dive into Axie, but I know a lot has changed. Maybe a high-level overview of what Axie is, how does someone play it? Axie is, on the surface, very similar to things like Pokemon and Tamagotchi. Each Axie is a digital pet. They're cute. They're fierce. You can battle them. You can collect them. The key difference is that in Axie Infinity, everything is tokenized, from the game characters to the items, the land. There are even tokens that represent ownership of the game itself. Basically, we've embraced this idea of crypto economics. We've infused that into the ecosystem to make this open, player-driven economy. And then once you have this base layer of property rights, interesting stuff started to emerge. We couldn't have predicted all of the things that would start to emerge, but that's what happens when you give freedom to people. Did the founding fathers envision everything that would happen with America? Innovation starts to pop up when you give people more rights and let them express themselves without trying to exert as much control as in the past. I'm curious to hear a lot about how whatever you thought this was going to turn into versus what it did. But to give a little bit more context of just the size and scope, could you put some numbers around how large Axie is today? Because I think it will blow people's minds. There are around 3 million people who own Axies. 
the Ronin wallet, the digital wallet associated with our ecosystem has hit 4 million downloads. 50% of our users have never used Web3 or crypto prior to playing Axie. We've done $3.8 billion of NFT volume. That makes Axie the number one NFT collection of all time. We built our own scaling solution, our own sidechain to allow us to hit millions of users. That sidechain alone through Axie processed 15% of all NFT volume in 2021. I think on that number of 3.8 billion, there really is nothing in comparison. I think I was looking at Top Shot and it was $800 million, which was a huge number, but actually is four times the size in total sales, as well as the number of people that use it is just outstanding. As someone who's participating in NFT and crypto and DeFi, Axie to me really feels like a separate nation. You talk about founding fathers, and I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts on developing something like this. I think for people who haven't played Axie, it really feels like crypto's got a steep learning curve, but Axie has its almost second steep learning curve. How do you think about onboarding new people and them learning about Axie? We think that onboarding and education is a lot of what we bring to the player base. That's almost a primary value because we believe that Web3 is going to change the world. We believe that crypto is going to change the world. And by being that first gateway into this entire new universe for players, we think that we're changing their lives. If you play Axie, you're going to be one of the first few million people to actually, actually interact with Web3. You're way ahead of the curve. Think of the people who used email in the 1980s, probably like helped them out opened up a lot of opportunities, gave them a glimpse of the future and where things were going. We believe that that is a core benefit of our product. And we take it really seriously. I think we could do a better job at it. We're still learning. We're getting a lot of feedback, iterating on our messaging, communication. What are people confused about? It's so important. And I think it's almost our core offering. We're looking at being able to issue diplomas to our players almost. This is really a hands-on course in the future of the internet. I saw a quote from you that in 2021, you started off with something like just under 30,000 active users, and your goal was to get to 375,000, and you ended up at 3 million. That type of exponential growth and usage, I can imagine, caused a lot of different challenges along the way and having to reshape how the game works, how people interact with it. When you look back at the early days in Axie, when they set out, obviously the growth is a wonderful thing to experience. I'm excited to dive into some of the changes you've had to make to balance the ecosystem, like our friend Hamilton. But in the beginning, if you can think back to playing CryptoKitties, what did you think that actually could become? In the early days, we really saw this social aspect of it, where even before we had a game, people were hanging out with each other, becoming lifelong friends. So we almost pitched Axie as a social network in the beginning. If you go back to my product hunt upload in 2018, it's like Axie is a digital pet community. It doesn't say that Axie is a game because we see it as a community. Communities, nations, they're bonded by common experiences, fun things that they can do in common. I think that's almost where we saw the game. We definitely saw the social impact. One of our core ideas was gamers should be able to turn their time and effort into real value because they are creating real value just depends on how is that value measured and captured and distributed among the user base. This is going to be a highly social experience. Gamers are creating a lot of value. How do we allow them to capture more of that value? Those were a lot of the things that we're thinking about in the early days. We learned a lot from watching CryptoKitties and being a member of that community. How do we capture some of the things that they did well that caused it to be interesting, but also make some core changes that allow it to 
be sustainable and much more fun of an experience. I'd love to dive in now to the economic structure of this based on your background of adding SLP token and AXS. And when people think about games, I think creating a game is really, really hard. A sustainable game is hard. What you guys have introduced by all these levers of economic structure has made it exponentially difficult. So I'm curious, when you thought about introducing those pieces, how did you think that interweaving them into the game would work? A lot of it was talking to the community. So in the early days, people would join our Discord and say, how can I earn tokens by playing this game? Like, oh, I'm here to earn Mio tokens. I want to earn this token by playing the game. And we're like, why do people like keep asking about that? People love tokens in crypto. This idea of there should be a game where you could actually just earn tokens by playing the game. It seemed like that was something that might have product market fit. We're not crypto people. We're not gaming people. But Trung, our CEO, he is, I think, a product person first and foremost. From our users, we could see that they really want to play a game and earn tokens. This jives well with our idea that people should be able to get some value. So then it's like, how do you create a token that's emitted by playing a game that can potentially have a non-zero value? That was the question that we started to think about. That led me down into the DeFi rabbit hole, because that's where a lot of the experiments in tokenomic design was happening. Met Delphi Digital through that whole experience, studying the maker token, Kyber, SNX, some of the early DeFi experiments. Initially, there was the core loop of you battle axes, you get experience points, you use those experience points to breathe. But then we had this idea that you don't actually own those experience points. Those experience points are an in-game resource. Those should also be a token. We made those tradable. I think our community really pushed us towards that. Once they were a token, community took over in a lot of ways. They created the Uniswap pool and they created this model, the scholarship model. You're lending out axes to people in less privileged parts of the world. You're creating this game as a supplementary income stream concept. We were just iterating in public with a couple of core principles. And we started to see these really interesting behaviors start to emerge. In many ways, this is similar to Ethereum. Ethereum's main use case in 2017, 2018 was ICO platform. I don't think Vitalik wanted that or imagined that. Probably annoyed him in some ways for it to be branded that way. And then you had DeFi and the rise of NFTs. Different narratives, different use cases for Axie rise and sometimes fall. Why? Because it's more of an open platform. It's something where the community can try out experiments in open economies that have real stakes. It sounds like the ethos of you and Trung and the other founders was always let the community own as much of this as possible. And you're iterating real time. So you basically have a game where version one, you own the assets and you get points, then you own the assets and get tokens. And those tokens could be converted back to dollars. So now you have a yield bearing instrument, essentially, where by playing the game, you can generate money. I think something that did make a lot of national headlines was this notion that there were people in countries that could afford the axes by the NFT. They could then lend them to developing nations. The one that was the largest on the platform was the Philippines. And that they could then basically let the people of the Philippines play for free and then generate an income for them. As that evolved, what was it about the Philippines? Was that all organic or how did that happen? It was very organic, I would say. There were a couple of key missionaries on the ground there. I met Gabby in 2018, went to Manila. I went to the Philippines a couple of times, planted the seed with Gabby. Gabby, I think, was very open to it. And you know, I gave him some axes and it was just like, he knew more about the future of axie than me, I think at that point where he's like, all this stuff is going to happen. Get ready. Your life 
It's going to change. Millions of people are going to get into this. Philippines, traditionally, early to social networks, massive mobile gaming culture, very community-based and family structure is really important. So information spreads like wildfires. What happens in that structure where, let's just say I bought a bunch of assets or Gabby has them and he's lending them out. What happens in that process of then they're generating income? Do they end up buying Axie themselves and then that structure breaks down? So it's no longer needed or how does that work? The guilds have thought long and hard about this. They see the scholarship model as just a first step in someone's Web3 journey. You should eventually go on to owning your own NFTs, owning tokens and ownership and these protocols, becoming someone who's Web3 literate. Web3 literacy is going to be a huge industry, in my opinion. It's going to be so important. People just see Web3 as this giant cash generating machine rather than something that is giving freedom to people and addressing a lot of the social issues at the heart of globalization, automation of labor. How do we find meaning and how do we have dignity of work in a world where many types of jobs are being destroyed and this pursuit of meaning? These guilds, they want scholars to become fully integrated into this whole crypto economy. You're using that as a stepping stone. Diving into that point about the meaning and work, if you had told me you were going to try to get 3 million people coordinated in an economic way and you came out with cryptocurrency, I would have been like, that's really hard. And this notion that it was the game first, but then you're teaching second was that always a mission that the idea was the game is just the door to get people in or was this a secondary vision for the team the vision definitely expands as we execute different people have different visions too a lot of us are dreamers from the early team and we thought that hey this is something that could really onboard billions of people to web3 if we can do that we can actually change the future of the world future of the internet because this is a technology that has been until now, inaccessible to everyday people. I think anyone who's ever tried to use a bank these days knows that there's a lot of room for improvement in the current paradigms. People don't own their stuff on their internet. People don't own their money. If you talk to the people who created the internet, they're all investing in Web3. Why? Because they didn't know how to solve this problem when they launched the internet. They didn't know how to create long-term social and economic relationships that are intertwined between people anywhere in the world. That's why eBay has to have a trust score. There was no way to embed that into the early days of the internet. Now we have a solution. Now the internet can actually reach its true potential. And you talk to the people who are around in 1995, they may be behind the scenes, they're running huge funds, but they believe in it. There's generally a tremendous amount of excitement across the board in that area. One thing I thought was one of the most interesting stats about Axie was this notion that 50% of people playing Axie had never bought crypto before Axie. And then even more importantly to me is that 25% of them don't have banking relationships. And I think that that's something where when someone might just superficially look at the cute little Axies and they go, oh, it's a fun game, like any app on the iPhone, it really doesn't even do justice to what's possible to happen. So how do you think about that population and what Axie could do? There's a massive potential here where we're starting to already see that in certain parts of the Philippines, Venezuela, merchants are accepting our in-game resources for goods. People are using Ronin Wallet instead of Gcash or whatever. And I didn't have a bank account for so long when I lived in Vietnam. Modern banking infrastructure is so primitive 
And it's so difficult, even for someone like me, to access and comprehend. Whereas the next generation, it's going to be these digital wallets where you actually own your funds. We can become a user aggregation layer. We have all these people using our wallet and that can integrate and be a building block for so much more. There are now merchants that are interested in integrating Ronin Wallet as an alternative or as something that you would add in addition to Google Pay. You Ronin Wallet login, whatever, and then you can even swap your in-game resources for e-commerce stuff. There's huge potential there. I think the future of gaming is to integrate gaming, payments, e-commerce, app stores. It has the potential to really do that. This is why Epic Games is fighting against Apple because Epic Games thinks that it has the leverage and that it has the true loyalty of the users. Players tend to be more loyal to gaming companies than things that are seen as purely app stores or purely tech companies. When you think about the infrastructure you just walked through, you start off with Axie, you have this vision for a game, you're opening it up and playing with tokens. You went on to build your own chain, Ronin, which is a side chain to Ethereum, your own wallet, your own decks. You built all the infrastructure of crypto specifically for Axie. And I guess I'm curious to understand when somebody does that, I usually think either they're doing it to control the whole system because they think it's a control, or they're doing it because they feel like the solutions don't fit their needs. So you have this purpose-built nature. What's the reason for building everything on your own? It would have been a lot easier if we didn't have to do that. So we tried. We built on Loom Network. Georgios was there. We thought it would do well, but it was just too early. We realized that the crypto ecosystem, in terms of building consumer apps, it was just too primitive. We were too early to be able to rely on other teams. And then also as a realization, there's nobody that's actually trustworthy that are building the solutions that we need. So might as well provide them for other people in the future. So people don't have to go through the same experiences that we went through that we had to put our community through. If you were building Axie today in 22, how do you think about where the state of the infrastructure exists? CryptoKitties eventually, because of their trouble, started building Flow. You've got Polygon with games. How do you think about the stuff that you guys have had to build relative to the state of the rest of the infrastructure in the space? I would build on Ronin. It's the thing that's tested at scale with millions of users. I don't want to comment on these other teams. They've been around. They're cool. A solution that's specifically geared towards games is kind of what we want, whereas a lot of these other things are trying to be too broad and trying to do everything. Whereas we're laser focused on gaming experiences. So we're almost minimalist in some ways. But we do have this obsession where we do build a lot of stuff ourselves. We're like that restaurant in Singapore where the chef is also hand carving the tables and the silverware. Everything needs to be perfect. We're almost OCD in that way. And we're product people. I think that's one of our strengths. It's also something that creates a lot of work for us. So as the head of growth, how does that affect your ability Going back to that point about onboarding, where you guys want to build to your standards and your specifications, but it's almost remarkable to me, the level of growth, understanding that a lot of this stuff is separate. You can't use a MetaMask or a Rainbow wallet. You got to use a Ronin wallet. I'm curious in your mind, do you look at that as a bug, a feature, a huge accomplishment because people are still coming in light of that? How do you think about the challenge as a product person and trying to grow the business? I think it's been interesting that we've been able to build the infrastructure and build the game alongside each other. There are some people who thought that's not possible or that's trying to bite off too much. It's created problems. It's also solved a lot of problems, but 
how good would Axie be if we could have just focused on Axie for the last four years rather than also building something else? But I think also the current NFT space is still really, really early. With Ronin, the onboarding became a lot easier and the experience became a lot easier. So we were able to have this insane viral loop that's still a little bit stymied on ETH. NFT communities on Ethereum are not focused on scale. It's more about actually exclusivity, whereas we're focused on inclusivity, where we want to bring in millions of people, billions of people. Obviously, you need to have both. You need to have the collectors that are flexing. We have them in our Axie ecosystem. I'll say like, because we have to focus on scale too, I think some of them, sometimes we aren't able to focus as much on that aspect of our ecosystem because we have multiple aspects of our ecosystem. But these are tough things that you go through when you're trying to do everything. Someone has to do it for the entire ecosystem. And these are the times where you expand horizontally and just take up as much of the landscape as possible in these early days. Because of the timing, the opportunity is just much larger than it will be in five years. I think about those personas. You have a collector, you've got an investor, you have a trader, you have a gamer, you have someone who just loves being part of the community. And I can't even imagine how hard it is to try to balance the different stakeholders. It's like being a politician. There is Axie politics. There are people who are pro Sky Mavis, anti Sky Mavis. Our approval rate is probably around 60 or 70%, pretty good compared to modern day governments and stuff like that. Obviously, long term, we want to give more power into the hands of the community. In terms of product development, you need to be able to be agile and iterate quickly. The main way that our community helps, I think, build so far has been they've done the marketing and the referrals. They've done a lot of amazing content creation, making YouTube tutorials or telling their friends and family about our movement. We just opened up this builders program where we have 1,800 people sharing their dreams of what they want to build on top of Axie as well. The community's role is definitely growing over time. Just staying on that topic of those different stakeholders, what are some examples of how you've had to try to balance, if you're the politician, dealing with the different desires? What's an example of Axie having to weigh trade-offs of the gamers versus maybe the group that wants to hold a passive investment in Axie or trade a coin? It's incredibly hard, but it's rewarding. And some of the stuff that I grew up dreaming that I would have a chance to do. I was interested in being a politician at a certain point, but I didn't want to be an American politician. It's nation building and it's very difficult weighing the desires of everybody. But I think it's most hard when you're trying to do everything yourself. So by bringing them in to the process and the cool thing that we see is you can look at Axie as a nation. You can also look at it as a hyperscalable gaming organization where hiring people takes a lot of time and effort and energy. You got to train them. It's so much more interesting when you can almost align incentives with infinite people without having to go through all these tedious processes and they're all aligned. They want what's best for Axie. They have assets that represent ownership in the ecosystem and they're working towards the same thing that you're working towards. If it was just Sky Mavis doing everything, it's not going to work. It's really, really rewarding work and it's very difficult. But the cool thing is that we have this hive mind that gives us huge leverage. How many employees are at Sky Mavis today? I think we just hit like 105. We were around 30, I think, in September. We just went through a growth spurt. It's basically the example of a rocket ship taking off and bolts just hanging on. What were some of the top areas you needed to focus on outside of infrastructure to maintain the community during that period? I think like sharing the vision. I think we should always share the vision more. 
what are the principles that we're building towards? Sharing the vision of Axie can bring freedom to the internet by introducing billions of people to Web3. We can share the value with our players if we extract all these middlemen. Doing that has been super important, but also just executing on the roadmap. In the early days, people were super excited. And then a month goes by, two months goes by, you haven't launched something, people start to grumble, and then you launch something. And then people are satiated. Those people who are there for that period, they start to understand the process more. They start to understand the ecosystem, but then you start to grow. You have more people who come in, they start to grumble, and you have a new release. So I think just executing on the roadmap has been important in bonding with the community. Also say that setting this roadmap, you're dealing with frontier tech. So I think like Elon probably deals a lot with you have all these people that are excited about what you're building. They want to know when they can expect it, but you're dealing with frontier tech. You want to give guidance or a forecast, but you don't want to be wrong. It's difficult stuff. The crew from 2018, 2019, generally, they kind of understand that process. But most of our players just started this year. It's a struggle. It's something that we go through. One thing I know for any leader is that people will say they're trying to be transparent, but sometimes they can't share something. One thing I'm in awe of you specifically is how transparent you are, even when it's negative for your own brand. You've done threads when things haven't gone the right way. I think this is why you get the status that I noticed in Miami. You're just sharing, I don't like this either. This is what I'm thinking about it. And I can't think of any company in the world would be like, Elon has a car break and it's like, yeah, I think this is why it's crashing, but I'm not sure. And we're going to talk about it. You clearly have built a tremendous amount of trust with the community. I think now what I'd like to hear from you is in Axie, you have these levers, you've got tokens, you've got games, you've got prices of breeding, and you've changed those and you've changed those to balance them. And I think this goes back to your thesis in college on Hamilton and trying to manage a government, but you're running a central bank. How do those decisions get made? Even trying to catalog the process internally is a little bit difficult. I think a lot of it is looking at the data, figuring out if there are certain thresholds. For example, if there's 50% more of a token being created per day than is actually being burned, supply is 2x demand. We need to start looking at something. If growth goes below product market fit around 5%, we need to start looking at addressing and making some economic changes. We'll start to see awesome proposals from the community on, okay, these are the fixes that need to be changed. In many cases, we have to be aware that there can be a disconnect between us and the community, just like there's a disconnect in the government and society because we are building the game, but the people in our community, they play the game 18 hours a day. They live the game. So we also have to make sure that we have a way of getting feedback from the community, from the actual entrepreneurs in the economy and seeing what their ideas are. There is this osmosis, looking at the data, getting feedback from the community. And then also the best solution is sometimes technically impossible or will take too long to implement. What is the MVP of these economic changes? It's incredibly fun, in my opinion. There are so many complex moving parts here. Before this, we just launched an announcement about upcoming huge changes to the economy. The community sentiment towards these changes started to shift just within the last couple of weeks from community leaders stepping up and saying that the economy needs tough medicine right now. And the public opinion around basically decreasing 
rewards and adventure mode and daily quest basically just went from maybe 30% more like 60 to 70% are now in favor of these changes. So it's fascinating stuff. It's a lot of fun. It's also very stressful, but I never thought that I would be in a position to be working and thinking on stuff like that. It's an incredible role. I feel you literally are Jay Powell, the president, the secretary of the treasury, and there's a lot of pressure in rolling out a decision that's going to have impact. When you make a change, what do you look to understand if it was successful? I think about the Fed raising rates. They're trying their best to manage something and you make a change, but you don't know all the ramifications it will have in the economy you're managing. What do you look to as a measure of success? We can look at growth levels. We can look at things like the mint to burn ratio, community sentiment. We look at marketplace volume. What are the KPIs? How many Axie owners there are? Ownership of the different tokens in the ecosystem, population growth rate, GDP, game domestic product. This is now a thing. What do you think about the inflation or deflation of the currencies? I feel like that gets a lot of airtime. People stare at a coin rises, comes down, SLP is in a deflationary cycle. Does that matter to you or is that too short-term thinking and that's the traders just looking for the easiest thing to measure? I think it's like somewhere between that. We have to be in touch with economic conditions on the ground of the economy, but we also have the longest term incentives, if that makes sense. There are going to be a lot of people in the economy. They might be more like mercenaries, especially during a bull market. Bull markets are annoying in some cases because you have all these people who come in And then the market turns and suddenly they become a huge headache for you. Exponential growth, bull markets, these are double-edged swords. But the idea though, is that you're ultimately left with more missionaries. There's a cycle to everything. Just on this point of changing the dynamics, I think of you're playing a game right now. It's, you have this Pokemon style game where you're battling your axes and there are people who are where we started it, living their lives or generating income off of this, and you change the rules. How do you think about changing the dynamics for the players that might be thinking, okay, this is how the game's working. And now suddenly I came back and it was changed on me. There are different types of people who want to focus on different layers of decentralization. What we focus on is our players have ownership of the game. Our players can help us build the game. We have these aligned incentives. In terms of, do we ban assets? Do we change the game over time? These are hard things that and we've discussed with our community members. Different people have different points of view, but this is an opt-in system. You don't like a change that happens in World of Warcraft. You have to deal with it or you can quit playing. But in this system, at least, okay, you can quit and you can sell all your assets and get at least some of your money back and move on to a system that is more aligned with your principles and ideals. It's a tricky, tricky thing, but we have to think about it in terms of product maximalists almost rather than dogmatic web three idealists. What you're doing is extremely challenging. And as the biggest, there's a lot of pressure that everyone expects it to be perfect. And when people feel flaws in it, they forget that you're still in alpha mode and testing a lot of the stuff out. One thing you had mentioned, I'm curious just to dive in a little bit deeper. You talked about the incentives of the team being long-term. How does the structure of the game reward you and the team? With Axie, Sky Mavis owns around 20% of the Axis tokens. So access tokens represent a piece of the game. You can use them to govern what the community treasury, I think there's around $1.2 billion in the community treasury govern what that is used for. We own 20%, the community owns 80%. Is my Axie my ticket to all Sky Mavis products? Or is there a world where Sky Mavis has multiple nations and universes they've created? 
The idea is that each team of axes is a ticket to all future Axie experiences, whether they're built by Sky Mavis or whether they're built by the community. So we tell the community, if you build something with Axie in the Axie universe, you should let people use their own Axies. How do we create a non-zero monetary value for an in-game character that has an uncapped supply? You make sure that the population growth of those characters is relatively under control and based on demand. And you make sure that the utility of those characters is constantly increasing over time. You can have more fun with them. Perhaps you can earn ownership in different products from them. Each Axie also allows you to create the future Axies. Each Axie is like a digital pet store. If you have two Axies that can breed together, you're a digital pet owner. So I think as you evolve the game and you think about changes you're making, it would be really fun to just touch on the future developments, the builders program, metaverse, all these new things that you're going to be able to do with the same axes. In terms of battling axes, we're going through our third iteration of that. In the beginning, you could use them in these automated battles in the AFK arena. And then now there's the current battle system that was built by around six people. Right now we have the upgraded battle system, Axie Infinity Origin, going to be much more beautiful faster paced, skill-based, importantly, also free to tries. Anyone will be able to get started, go down the, the rabbit hole without actually having to spend anything. We also are working on Project K, land, collect, resources, fight for control of territory, build up a town, a city, form alliances, something more similar to like a clash of clans with a little bit of Stardew Valley, the harvesting, then also the territorial kind of combat. Those are the two main threads of gaming experiences that we're focused on with Sky Mavis. We see room for an entire universe of mini games and having third-party studios coming in to build on top of the Axie IP, having the community come up with unexpectedly amazing stuff. This is similar to a Roblox model. Dave from Roblox actually invested in the Series B. We have very aligned visions. If we achieve our goal of hitting hundreds of millions of players plus, we're never going to be able to produce content fast enough for that number of people. So this is why it's like no game has ever scaled to billions of people. Why? Because game development has not been hyperscalable before, but now maybe it can be. I feel like the word play to earn became loaded. I know you guys now call it play and earn. And I'd just love to get your take on the general landscape, what that means to you and why play to earn is so different than play and earn. There have been a lot of really fun games before. There haven't been a lot of games where you can come in and start earning money. That's always been a little bit more of an exclusive experience. The media definitely loved that narrative and definitely pushed it. But ultimately, these economies cannot be sustainable unless people are spending in them for reasons that they spend in traditional economies. Why do people spend money in real life? You spend money for convenience, for status, and the pursuit of love for community. Axie has some of that amount of spending. We need to increase it over time. The more we can increase that, then the more sustainable of an economy we're going to have. In terms of nation building lingo, so far we've been a growth dependent, foreign investment dependent, emerging market nation. That's okay. That's how most countries start out. But long term, we need to focus and we need to transition into a export driven, consumer spending fueled economy. So what does that look like in terms of being a game? People are spending for fun, for status, for convenience. And then also outside brands are saying, we would love to come in and increase our brand equity by 
getting our message out to your community. Those are non-financial return driven sources of capital into the ecosystem. Later earn, it makes it harder to build towards that future because you're going to be attracting people that are only coming to play the game to make money based on that messaging. Looking at through the lens of a frontier country and emerging market and creating a game that's this spectacular, not everything goes well and not everything goes as a planned. I think right now would be a good time to talk about the in-game tokens and their extreme rise and then fall. The you know SLP was at, I think, three cents and it went to 30 cents and it's back closer to two or three cents. AXS went up to you know $160. It's down to $50. I guess my question to you is, how do you think about it as a game developer having to act also like a central bank to control the currency and how the different reaction between speculators and game participants? It's really interesting working on this type of crypto powered or Web3 powered game. It is in many ways a new type of game, but in other ways, like a lot of these problems are things that have also been faced by game designers and game economists in the past. The role of a game economist, it's not necessarily new. So in a given economy, whether it's blockchain enabled or not, there has to be this balance between the way that in-game resources, or in our case, tokens are emitted, and basically how they're used. In game design, this is called a sync. And the sinks they derive their power from gamers spending their hard-earned resources, tokens, to collect things, to get to progress, to get closer to their goals, right? So there has to be, from a game design perspective, there has to be enough intrinsic motivation for playing the game, to make friends, to have fun, to show off and flex. These are the things, these are the emotions and loops that drive sustainability of a game economy. So balancing the in-game economy, it was it's much easier at a smaller scale because things aren't moving as fast. And for three years, we had a pretty balanced economy. It was then, okay, like hyper growth came in, right? You have millions of people, the amount of tokens that are being generated each day and sold, right? It kind of went exponential. So that you know, definitely created a lot of really interesting problems. But the reassuring thing, in my opinion, is that game economy design, this is a field that's around 25 years old. And a lot of the learnings can be applied, reapplied to Web3 gaming. So for example, in order to increase demand for the in-game resources, whether that's access or SLP, for example, we can introduce body part upgrades. Those body parts could be, some of them could be super rare and look really cool and allow you to progress in the game. And then because people want to progress, they just need these body parts, they're then willing to spend their in-game resources. The fundamental issue is that there has to be this balance between right, the people that are spending within the game and those that are looking to earn some extra income, right? This isn't a magical world where everyone can put in $5 and take out 10 just the core difference, right, is that in a traditional game, when gamers are spending, 100% of that goes to the game developer, whereas our model is different, where we're sharing a majority of that spend with the players that are actually within the universe. It's interesting that people have been thinking about game economies, to your point, for 25 years. I think something that can be lost in the discussion is that when you introduce tokens, you have this new actor, which is in-game economies have been thought of, but speculating from the outside, people who have never played this game are able to 
play with the currency. They're able to speculate on going up or down. And how do you think of a game designer of trying to really from the view of almost a central bank, when the market gets too hot, being like, oh, this might not even be the players. This is just outside market forces. And how do you think about intervening in that way of the maybe the speculator versus the player? There's definitely, especially within crypto, there is the rise of a speculator kind of class that can come in and you know, in some ways wreak havoc on your ecosystem and in some ways actually really help your ecosystem by providing liquidity and things like that. So it is definitely tough to balance. I think all we can do from our end is to really make sure that right we're building an awesome game that has sufficient reason to basically give utility to the in-game resources and the tokens. The speculators, you know, they'll come and go. It can, in the short run, I guess, cause some imbalance in, in the game economy. But yeah, I think what we have to do is really focus on the missionaries, the people who are playing to have fun or have a really super long-term vision and understand what this movement is about. That said, right, there, there are things that we can do, like cut the emission, which is something that we actually did recently. We saw that the amount of SLP that was being emitted through the game was way higher. It was like 230 million SLP was being created each day, and only 40 million was being used each day for breeding. What we did is we actually took out the daily quest, we removed the adventure mode emissions, and then we got it down to, right, I think around 89 or 90 million SLP per day. Right? So there are levers that we can control, but just like we also have to build towards the long term as well. So we're simultaneously like the central bank, but we're also the builders of the universe. And we can use the levers, but we also, I think, like, Part of it is just like creating an amazing universe that people want and a community that people want to be a part of. We've talked about it before that you've just been extremely transparent, especially, I think, most importantly, a good leader transparent when things aren't going well. Can you give us an example of you know how you've tried to tell the community how you're feeling about something or changes that you might have wanted to make, but just for whatever reason, you have a, a very large company, a lot of different stakeholders, kind of how hard it is to go from, yes, I understand the problem, but I'm tr- the implementation of that solution. As you get larger and kind of get buttoned up a little bit more, you have more process. Process is good, right? It, it makes sure that you don't make any like huge mistakes and then everything is nice and polished. At the beginning of implementing process, sometimes before everyone is used to it, it can also extend and make you a little bit less agile, right? So you want to be in this middle ground where right, you have enough process so that people can come in and understand what's happening and then all your releases and communication to the community are really good. But then you also want to maintain a lot of what got you here, which is that startup mindset and, and being super nimble. So that, you know, that's it's something that we're grappling with right now. I think we're, we're making a lot of progress. One example, right, is that the mint to burn was pretty out of whack and was really apparent even as early as like November, December. Uh, and we started basically talking to the community and saying, hey, like, you know, this is out of whack. What, what should we do? And we started having internal discussions as well. And then, it, you know, there, was, there wasn't there was actual implementation of that until kind of early February. So in an ideal world, it would be like, okay, we identify the problem and then very quickly kind of roll something out. So I I think all we can do is look at what in that process from detection of the problem to the rollout of the solution, you know, were were there any times in that process that dragged on for too long and we shortened basically that kind of production line? Like you talked about, that's developing in the state, but trying to grow to become more of a developing nation is a really interesting framework to think about Axie. 
So Ronin is your side chain. And the way I think I understand, but correct me if I'm wrong, this really is very much like Ethereum, but you've tweaked it. It seems that when Ethereum gets upgrades to security, somehow Ronin benefits from it. So explain to me how Ronin works and how it's different than something like a Polygon, an L2. Ronin is an NFC scaling solution built for hyperscaling these NFT games, which are beginning to take on characteristics of distinct digital nations. Ronin is an Ethereum fork, so it's EVM compatible. To be honest, scaling solutions are becoming a commodity. There are a lot of them. So in terms of the tech, the tech is becoming commoditized. The Ronin bridge, it's number three. It's one of the top bridges on Ethereum in terms of total value locked, even though it's only serving one game. What's special about Ronin? Ronin has 4 million people on it. 4 million people have downloaded the Ronin wallet. It has the Axie community living on it. So if you're a NFT gaming developer, you actually want to succeed. What are you going to do? You're going to go to the platform that has the users, that has access to users. That's the idea behind Ronin is we built for four years and saw what was out there. It was nothing that really made sense for us as product focused people. So we built it. It's worked out. It's worked for us. And we believe that it'll work for the next generation of really ambitious builders. Are there other game developers on Ronin today? And if not, when do you see the next independent or sister nation building on a Ronin? We haven't made any announcements yet. It's a place where people are super excited to potentially build. And we want to open it up more over time where it's much easier to start building on Ronin. Right now, we have to invite you, which is, in my opinion, against the ethos. Not great, but it's also, there are a lot of things that could go wrong if we took a super open approach really early. Hope to have some strong partners building on Ronin by the end of the first half of this year. So that's what we're thinking. That's exciting. I'm excited to see what you do there. Gia, this has been super fun. I like to end podcasts with the same question. And you have a lot here. So I'm excited for both parts of this. But what are you most excited to see built over the next six months? And what are you most excited to see built over the next six years? We are fully focused on the launch of Axie Infinity Origin. For the first time, you're going to be able to play this amazing, beautiful, fun NFT game without having to make any economic decisions. People will be able to see, hey, like these games are actually fun. These games are actually just as fun, if not more fun, than traditional games. And I played a lot of creature collecting mobile games over the last couple of years. They're not as fun as Axie Infinity Origin, in my opinion. We're super excited about that. And we think it's going to introduce the Axie IP to an entire new generation. Over the next 10 years, I'm super excited to see this entire ecosystem of digital nations, sister nations, start to pop up on Ronin, where you have the Axie digital nation, and then you have something that's peripheral. It might share some currency, right? There might be a reserve currency, right? Maybe that's Ron. And yet you just have different types of gaming experiences for different people all happening on this hyperscalable chain for digital nations. So. Well, Gio, I really appreciate meeting with part of the government structure of this emerging nation. And I look forward to staying in touch with you and watching how this thing grows. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 